Let's uh, stand on our feet together. I'm going to read the Bible. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Matthew chapter 5. We stand just as a physical act of demonstrating that these are the most authoritative words that will be spoken in this place tonight. The living and enduring word of God. We're going to read the, the Beatitudes. I'm going to read them over you. So this is Matthew 5, verse 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Been preaching through these Beatitudes for the last maybe two and a half months. We've taken a few segues here and there, uh, but we're going to jump into them tonight. We have two left, and tonight I'm going to unpack Blessed Are the Peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we come and we thank you, God, that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, judging the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we'd pray, Lord, that your word would proceed forth from your mouth tonight and that it would speak into the inner reaches of our hearts. We thank you that you are the good sower and that you're sowing seeds into the soil of our imagination, God, and that it's seed that comes from heaven and it has the potential of germinating and springing forth and bringing an entire new reality to our lives. And so we open up and receive the seed. And maybe just confess in your heart that if, you know, I, I honor your, your word, Lord. Not the sermon, God, but we step back and we honor your word. And we ask that your word will come forth even through the sermon. And we pray that in Jesus' name. If you agree with it, say amen. Amen. I love the Beatitudes. Don't you? Oh, so sweet. Yes. 
Such a sweet yes, wow. You're in a sweet mood tonight. I have a challenging word tonight. So prepare to be challenged by God's grace. So before we jump into it, just another note on these Beatitudes. This is Jesus introducing to us as humans. He's taking human language. He's been on earth about 30 years at this point. He's taking human language and he is wrapping divine wisdom around it and saying this is reality. This is the, the foundational stones. These are the cornerstones and foundation of what the kingdom of God is like. He was coming to make the way of God visible to humanity. The creator, God, Yahweh, he created the earth and there is a way that life is meant to flourish. Like he has a way of life. He's the author of life and Jesus is the author of life and he is authoring life (laughs) through these words. He's saying this is what life's all about. If you will come into congruence with the reality that he's explaining, that he's these statements that he's making here, we will become blessed. So this is a big deal, these Beatitudes. And the first four we looked at earlier in the year, and they go from a state of emptiness to being filled. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom and to the hungry and thirsty will receive righteousness. And then the next four switch and they go from a state of being filled with righteousness. And then it's the effect of that righteousness lived out. So these next four and what we're talking about tonight in peacemakers is actually an active definition of what righteousness looks like. When you get filled with God's righteousness, you start to change the environment that you live in. And we looked at pure in spirit. We looked at merciful. Tonight, we're going to look at peacemakers. So Jesus is actually describing to us this is what the way of righteousness, this is how it manifests in the ones that I make righteous through my grace, through my mercy. So we're going to jump into this and just paint the picture, right? This is a visual, this, by God's grace, this message will be a visual aid of what the righteousness of God looks like in our lives, okay? Peacemaking. You guys are just hung up that I said it's going to be challenging. <laughs> I, I can feel it. Challenging is good. <laughs> I warned you at least. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Guys are brides, girls are sons. I'm just going to say sons tonight, but I'm speaking to all of us. Amen? You know what I mean by guys are brides? You guys are really tough tonight. You're still hung up on the challenge. We're all the bride of Christ. We're all sons of God. It just makes it easier as a preacher. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's just kind of build a context for this scripturally, and then we'll just kind of layer and follow our way through this tonight and see what the Holy Spirit wants to bring forth. So when we look at the word peace, it's in the Hebrew would be shalom. Anybody been to Israel? They say shalom all the time. And it's like shalom. That's like a greeting. I still say it quite a bit sometimes. I think it 
told my brother that earlier this week. Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. It's not really Shabbat, but it's a, you know, it's a Christian Shabbat today. It's Shabbat uh, Shalom. Shalom is more than just peace, though. Shalom, if you were to look at a Hebraic understanding of the word, it's a lot deeper than just peace. And the, the picture that we would get of Shalom scripturally would be Genesis 1, when God creates the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rests, and he looks at everything he does and says it's very good. That would be the Hebraic understanding of Shalom. It's perfection, prosperity. It's the creation has actually come into the order of the creator. There's complete harmony. Things are at rest. The whole ecosystem of life is functioning properly. Shalom. So peace is powerful. Peace is creative. We often define peace similarly to we do purity. Culturally, that is, we, we define purity. We talked about this as the absence of blemish. That's not a kingdom understanding of purity. And we do similar things with peace. We describe peace as the absence of disturbance. But this is not the Hebraic, this is not the biblical understanding of peace. Peace is powerful. Peace is creative. Peace is what God made those first six days and then he enjoyed on the seventh. It was shalom. Peace is what Jesus did in Matthew 8 when he's sleeping in the midst of a storm. He rebukes his disciples for freaking out and then says, peace, be still, shalom. Let the creation come back into the created order, the harmony of the shalom of the creator, the Lord our peace, Jehovah shalom. Are you capturing this? So peace is powerful. It's not the absence of something. There was a lot of disturbance that day, Matthew 8, when the storm, you know, and just so you know, on that, it's a lake, but there's stores, because the lake's so low elevation, there's these huge pressure ridges that get released sometimes, and it'll be like 10-foot waves that can actually kill you. So it, it was a real storm, real disturbance, but there was peace that was more powerful because it's a higher reality. There's different realities in life. Yes, the storm is a reality, but God's saying, I am the alpha reality. I am Jehovah Shalom. My peace is the alpha reality. It's powerful. Peace is powerful. Peace calms storms. God's peace calms storms. Blessed are the peacemakers. So let's link now Genesis 1, this vision of shalom, and then let's look at Paul's words in Romans 8 when he says that the creation itself was subjected to futility, the bondage of sin, and now it says the creation is groaning for what? The revelation of the sons of God. We're all sons, remember. The creation now who is subjected to futility is longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called. Why is the creation longing for the revelation of the sons of God? Shalom. The, the very creation is longing for shalom. Longing for the restoration of the harmony of the creative order, the brilliance and the wisdom that God brought forth all of the cosmos, the creation's longing for shalom. So Jesus is making a really deep statement here that's being extrapolated both in New Testament, Old Testament understanding that this idea of being a peacemaker is very closely linked to a revelation of identity. We were singing tonight, I am who he says I am. When there is a revelation within the inner reaches of a human being and a son or a daughter steps in and actually starts to stand in who they are, they will begin to bring shalom into places where there's no peace. They'll start to not just change their own lives. Peace isn't just for me to enjoy and have a nice restful afternoon. Peace is 
huge implications upon the surrounding world that I'm living in. And the amazing thing is that Jesus lived this too. Jesus was a peacemaker because this is not just Jesus. These beatitudes aren't just him talking about the kingdom. The kingdom can't be disconnected from the king himself. This is Jesus disclosing his own heart, his own identity, the inner parts of his spiritual culture with the father. He's saying, this is what it's like. I'm a peacemaker. It's how you can know I'm a son of God. He is the son of God. We are a son. We are little s sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You with me? All right, let's go a layer deeper now. Let's talk about peacemaking. Because peacemaking is not peacekeeping. This is where the challenge is going to come. We think of Peacemaking, I think if we were to do a poll of public opinion, maybe do one of those uh, things, you know, like Jay Leno, where you just kind of meet people on the street and say, hey, what's a peacemaker? I'm guessing that what most people would define would sound something like peacekeeping. You know, good people, people that create order, that create peace, all these nice things. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And to do this, I want to actually look at Jesus himself to get a vision of what a peacemaker is, because our vision of Jesus will shape our understanding of ourselves. So we're going to look at Jesus and then hopefully weave ourselves into this vision of who Jesus was as a peacemaker. So Isaiah 9 says, you know, he's the prince of peace. So Jesus is the prince of peace. And then in Matthew 10, verse 34 He says, I came to the earth not to bring peace, but a a sword. And in the context, he's talking about family members actually be turned against themselves and the provocative nature of his message that it would actually create enemies and it would create conflict. He's not talking about violence, but he's talking about conflict, confrontation. So he is both the prince of peace and... Apparently did not come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. <laughs> I just think it's funny. Like he's challenging. He's challenging us. Scripture's challenging. Scripture's not always straightforward. You have to you have to really sit with it. Sit with the Lord in Scripture. So let's let's unpack this paradox because I'd say both these things are true. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He also came with a sword. To take a step back to understand Jesus as he would have been understood in that day and age, if we were, you know, if I was born in Nazareth in AD 5, right? This is sometimes helpful because we know Jesus in a different context. If we would have been living in Nazareth, if this wasn't River House, but this was Nazareth, and we are all trying to understand who this Jesus guy is that's kind of sweeping the world, we wouldn't have understood him in a lot of the titles that we know today. We would have understood him in the lineage of the Jewish prophets. And the Jewish prophets, if you've read about them, (laughs) they weren't like... They weren't like nice guys. (laughs) They were like troublers of Israel, is what they called Elijah. You know, they turned the world upside down. They stepped on toes. They made people extremely uncomfortable. 
like half naked sometimes, eating their food, being cooked over animal poop, marrying prostitutes. <laughs> it was just uncomfortable. <laughs> we could go on and on. Like, it's uncomfortable. They said uncomfortable things. They would make people cringe. They were uncomfortable. They were challenging. They ate locust and honey and wore weird clothing. I don't picture John the Baptist as like super put together and polished. Like they probably didn't smell super awesome, right? This is, this is the lineage. This is most succinctly what people would have understand Jesus as. He's another prophet. Which we say that, we, we'd say those same words, but we don't have the context of like, oh, that would have been really, really uncomfortable. And this is just my belief that I think if Jesus came into a lot of churches in the West right now, we would be... 10 times more uncomfortable than we actually think we would. Because Jesus came as a prophet. Jesus isn't like this super, super, like we think of Jesus as this really nice guy that made everybody feel really, really good. That There's truth in that. But he wasn't like this, like it, it was like you still had a fear too. <laughs> like what, what's he going to do? What's he going to say? You couldn't predict what Jesus was going to do. And when we can't predict what someone's going to do, that means it feels out of control. And out of control doesn't feel safe. This is C.S. Lewis, what he's trying to capture in Chronicles of Narnia. We've probably heard a quote, and Lucy's asking, is the lion safe? No. But he's good. Jesus is not safe. He's good. Following Jesus is not safe. I don't know where we've got the notion that following Jesus is safe because he leads us to a cross. There was nothing safe about his life. There was, there's just nothing safe about following Jesus. The only safety it is about following Jesus is that you know your heart's safe. <laughs> but as far as your body, your plans... Everything, you don't, there's no, there's no other state. There's no something. It's like, actually, it's the opposite. It's going to be fire. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to be trials. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenged. But if you persevere, you're going to see my glory. So Jesus, Jesus is not necessarily, I think we have somewhat of a domesticated cage that we'd like to think he's at home in. And he's not. There's a difference between looking at a lion in a zoo and if you were to stumble your way into one in the middle of an African plain, you would have a different internal response. <laughs> because in one of those scenarios, you'd be in control. And in the other one, you would not be. And I have a deep, fundamental craving inside of me that I do not want a domesticated Jesus. I want the Lion of Judah 
as he is. And I say that with trembling because I don't quite know what that means. You know, over the, the last years, there's been a lot of, you know, criticism that's come around River House, and most of it I hear second, third, fourth hand. But if I were to succinct it down to a line of what it usually boils down to, it's something, you know, if I were to just kind of label, label it, it's, you know, the place is pretty passionate. I don't really know what's going to happen. I can't predict what's going to happen. And it feels a little out of control, and that means that that's bad. Because I think we've been, in some ways, hardwired to think that feeling out of control and being uncomfortable means bad. That being challenged means bad. And so when I hear those things, it's not that I like the criticism, but I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. Except I would just say it's not bad. I would say that feeling of being out of control and being challenged is actually good. That's what produces growth. And I think that's part of what Jesus is trying to reintroduce to the wineskin that I think he's birthing in this country. It's not just here at River House. I, I pray we play a small part of it. But we, need, we want the line of the tribe of Judah. We want Jesus to be himself. And I just hope that I can get to the point one day when my heart, he truly trusts that I can handle him for who he is. What does this have to do with being a peacemaker? Right, Jesus was very confrontational. He, was, he confronted sin. He confronted hypocrisy. He confronted anything that he saw to be unrighteous. Anything that would stand in the way of the shalom that the creation was designed to come into alignment with. He, he confronted it. This is why he was so polarizing. This is why he was crucified, by the way. He was crucified because he would confront the, he was confronting the systemic brokenness within the spirituality of the Israeli nation that was in, impeding the peace of God, the reign of heaven actually coming to the earth. Like he had the guts to walk into the temple and to start throwing ham, just going crazy, flipping tables, the court of whips. He's not doing conflict for the sake of conflict. He's doing conflict for the sake of shalom. He was a peacemaker. And because he was so committed to the vision of peace that he saw, that he knew to be truth, the, the reality of the kingdom, he just couldn't stand. He couldn't, he couldn't not step into the hornet's nest of the unrighteousness and the brokenness and challenge it. Not, not to be some sort of macho, you know, with his chest puffed. It was with a heart that was rent. It was with a heart that was just 
breaking with compassion for people. It was like, I long for you to know the real thing. So he's a peacemaker. And this is, this is the truth when it comes to being a peacemaker. Is that if you're a peacemaker, you carry around a sword of truth and healing balm all the time. A sword of truth, which is the word of God, according to Ephesians 6, which, according to Hebrews 4, is piercing, sharper than a two-edged sword. So it's, it's more than a two-edged sword. And it's piercing. It's piercing thoughts and tensions. It's piercing soul and spirit. It's piercing. It's, it gets in. It's confrontational. But to be a peacemaker, you have to actually wield the sword of truth and it's the sword of truth that creates the confrontation not because you're going around looking for some place to swing the sword but because you've become intimate with the sword of truth which James 1 says is a mirror that we look into meaning that if you want the vision for shalom that could give you the courage to step into the hornet's nest you have to look into the mirror of reality to see that vision. Meaning you will probably create the wrong conflicts if you aren't a person of the word because the word will inform the conflicts that you step into because it will show you what God's reality and what God's vision is and you will know that you know that you know that that is not the righteousness of God. And I have to speak truth. If you're a person of the word who carries the sword of truth, you're not going to be swinging with zeal. It's going to be these rays of light that will pierce forth from you. And it will shine into the inner places of people, into the societal places of brokenness, with a vision of peace, with the sword, with, with light, with conviction, with confrontation. So this is spirit-led confrontation. This is not just walking around with two hands on a sword, swinging every time you want to. This is why meekness was like four Beatitudes ago. <laughs> the other half of you will get that in like five years. I'm, I'm just, I'm totally joking. I'm totally joking. That was a bad joke. I don't even mean that. Zerp, fishing for that one back back in. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So we have a sword of truth. We also have healing balm. Right? The sword of truth is going to challenge every attachment, the love of the world. That John 1 says that the love of the world is in you, and it's not of God. There's this contrast between love of God and love of the world. And if we have love of the world, right, the sword of truth will challenge the love of the world and the bride of Christ because it's undefiled devotion that will bring about the John 15 branch that bears much fruit and brings the Father glory and transforms the world. So the sword of truth will challenge those attachments and will shine light and create opportunity for repentance. This is why Jesus started his messages with repent. It's not like, hi, I'm Jesus, I was born in Nazareth. You know, here's a picture of my mom, isn't she cute? Like, it was like, repent! 
Change the way you think. It's time to turn. Turn from what you have been living in and know that there's a whole new reality available to you. Peacemaker. But we also have healing balm. And a peacemaker cuts, but a peacemaker also heals. And this is really important. A peacemaker cuts for the sake of peace. The only difference between a troublemaker and a peacemaker is that people get to peace. So if people don't get to peace, you might be a troublemaker. <laughs> it's just so much more funny than it, you're, it, could, it could be funnier. <laughs> just let it be honey right now. It'll turn to meat later. And then you can chew on it. But it's okay. We don't have to be so serious. I read Galatians 5 a couple weeks ago. Seriousness is still not a fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> so it is okay to not be serious, even when things have weight. This is weighty. But it's not serious. This is Jesus' leadership. This is Jesus saying, hey, I'm giving you a vision of who you are. I call you son. I call you daughter. He loves us. That's why he corrects us. That's why he's a peacemaker. He wants to bring us to shalom. This is really good news. By God's grace, we're going to enter deeper into shalom. It's the blessed life. All right, so we have healing balm. Peacemakers cut. Peacemakers also heal. Peacemakers will... Peacemakers speak with the wisdom of God, and that's why they heal. James, well, Colossians... Five, I believe, it says that our speech is to be seasoned with grace as though with salt. So we're to be people of gracious speech. James 3 talks about the wisdom that's from heaven. It says the wisdom from above is first peaceable, then pure, gentle. It's all these lists of things. And then it says at the end of this kind of description of wisdom, it says, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace, say in peace, in peace by those who make peace. Make peace. Peacemakers. So let's just look at this. The wisdom of God is peaceable. It's full of peace. And the seed, which would be the words that sown that create righteousness, are sown in peace by those who make peace. Meaning this. A peacemaker. Here's, like the, here's the strategy of a peacemaker. I am a person of the word, and I'm grounded in the peace of God. I have rooted myself in a vision of shalom. God has actually transformed me, and I've come into alignment, into congruence with reality, which is shalom. I've read this quote a couple times the last, the last year. John Mark Comer puts it in a couple of his books. but It says, if you go against the grain of reality, you get splinters. <laughs> I don't like splinters. I have one on my finger right now, and I can't get it out. Right? This sucks. But if you go against the grain of reality, you get splinters. But then if you jump into the river of the kingdom of God, you just flow, and it's life. Right? So we don't want splinters. Right? So a peacemaker has no more splinters. They've just said, okay, I'm in the river uh, flows from God. I'm in your way of life. I've submitted and I trust your leadership. So I'm in the river and I've been rooted in a vision of peace. So now that I'm rooted in this vision of peace, now I'm confronted and I see unrighteousness in the world. 
Right? And so the Lord sends me with the sword. The sword of his word proceeds forth from me. It brings light to a person's life, to a situation, societal, whatever it is. It shines light. And I'm in this and I'm persevering because my, the words of wisdom, they're peaceable and they're pure and they're seed sown that create righteousness. So I'm just going to keep sowing and keep sowing and I'm walking in the process and I'm not doing any of this with a jaded heart, but I'm doing it with an open heart and I'm persevering with people until I see shalom come. I see the seed bear the fruit of righteousness and what was unrighteousness has now become righteous. So being a peacemaker is a relational assignment. It's not just swinging a sword. It's I see peace. I step into the hornet's nest and then I persevere and I keep sowing, knowing that what began as a sword is actually going to end in healing, restoration, harmony, beauty, perfection, shalom. This is awesome. This is awesome because this is Jesus. There's a, a saint in the church. She was in the 1300s. Her name's Julian of Norwich. Some of you may have heard of her. She's not as famous as some others, but she was born in the early 1300s and the first 30 years of her life were the, the first bubonic plague, so the Black Plague. So it was the Dark Ages. It was a very dark time in the world. And at the age of 30, she was what's called an anchoress, which means she lived in a prayer cell at the church and was a woman of prayer. At 30, she became sick to the point of death. I believe it was the plague. And they uh, had given up hope, and it was going to be like the day she was going to die. And as she lay on her deathbed in pretty horrible pain, she had, I believe, 16 visitations from Jesus where she started having these visions. And I believe in the 14th visitation, Jesus came to her and he spoke these words. And he said, all is well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing is well. She recovered miraculously and then lived, I believe, the next 33 years of her life trying to unpack those words. And I think it's amazing imagery of the reality that there is a shalom, there's a peace that is higher than our circumstances that we can tap into in relationship with Jesus. All is well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing is well. Because shalom is not circumstantial, it's relational. And God doesn't want us to just live that. He wants us to, according to Jesus, make that. Which is just so awesome. What time is it? Okay, are you challenged? Well, here's the challenging part. I'm going to be a peacemaker. And I, I, I envision peacemakers, if we're just like, you know, that's all those, man, beautiful scriptures and Jesus and all this stuff. Let's just like put it in right here. 
I imagine a peacemaker like as these the people that have the courage to you know you have hornet's nest in your backyard or whatever and you don't really want to stir up the hornet's nest so you're like hey just stay away from that area in the yard because there's hornets over there yeah. right peacemakers are the people that are like you know what I'm gonna get the hose or the baseball bat and I'm gonna I'm gonna hose that thing off and I'm gonna take a swing like a pinata at this thing because I'm tired of the low-key anxiety of seeing a swarming hornet's net over there all the time. The unfortunate reality in our world is that most people are just like, you know what? I'll just put more clothes on. I don't care if it's 85 degrees. I'll put a sweatshirt. I've got some goggles that I used last winter on the snowboard hill. Like, I'm just going to cover up. We're good. Leave the hornets alone. This is is the world. And that is not the church. We're not called to be a PC people. I'm not saying that we're called to go and get on social media and voice every opinion we have either. Right? Remember, people of the word. It's spirit-led confrontation. I'm not saying this is a license for you to go swing at every hornet's nest that you see. But as there's times that you're going to find yourself in conversations with people. You're going to find yourself in situations at work. You're going to find yourself in situations with your family, with your extended family, with people that you worship next to. You're going to find yourself and you're going to, you're going to suddenly realize that you're standing on someone's back porch and there's a hornet nest in the corner of it. And the loving thing to do is to take the baseball bat out and let the Lord proceed forth from you and speak the truth. Be prophetic like Jesus was prophetic. Not from a heart that wants to wound, but a heart that just says, this is reality, there's a better way. There's shalom. All right, so I'm gonna gonna take a swing. (laughs) I may get stung for it, but that's okay. (laughs) With my heart, I love you, I love this church. I've given my life to see this community flourish. It's my deepest longing is to see us come into shalom because I think the world's longing to see it. So I want to just say a few things. I'm not trying to call any individual or particular thing out, but I just want to share a couple things about what I'm just going to label an independent spirit that I think is very hindering to the life of the church and the life of any personal believer. And, you know, I just, you see things as a sitting in the vantage point that God's put me within a spiritual community. I see things and I'm just going to share with you um, what I believe the Lord's put on my heart to share. So I just want to talk about two different characteristics uh, that identify in, in my thinking of an independent spirit, and I'm not like gonna call an altar call or something either. I'm just, you know, Jesus, I think I love about Jesus, you know, even the Beatitudes, he's not like, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom, so you need to go be poor. He's not telling us what to do. He's just like, here's reality, and we're, we're left to figure out what to do with it. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just gonna say, hey, 
in all humility, here's some truth you can wrestle with. All right, so this is Ephesians 2. The first mark I want to talk about of an independent spirit is a lack of honor for anything that doesn't look like you or sound like you. So another way of saying that is that you only have value for people that think like you or act like you or, like, or that are like you. So it's like this chronic sameness that you'll subconsciously recreate in your life. This is Ephesians 2, verse 13. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, he's speaking to Gentiles. You who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, Jew and Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the strife, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So when Paul is speaking of a dividing wall, he's actually speaking of the physical dividing wall that was at the outer, the outer court of the temple that Gentiles could no longer walk into the inner court. So Gentiles were allowed to a certain place, and then only the chosen were, were, were allowed in. And Paul's speaking, this is quite a few years after Jesus, and he's speaking because there's still inherent racism within the church. There's conflict between Jew and Gentile, and he's trying to identify the worst division that he knew in his day and saying Jesus destroyed that so that two groups of people that should have nothing in common suddenly are one. And I, I just, when you look in the church, there's these, there's these tension points, and one I'm just going to highlight is generational there's generational tension of how does Gen Z and Millennial and Gen X and Baby Boomer. We have four, four generations well represented in this church, which is amazing, by the way. Right? Gen Z, Millennial, Gen X, Baby Boomer. And if you just look at the natural how things take place is there's often times where it's like we don't, there's, there's, there's these gaps in understanding one another generationally. And I, I mean, I'm just going to be honest. There's insecurity between how the generations uh, can relate within some. There's pride within some. And some people don't have value. Some people don't think anybody has to have to offer. Some people don't think, you know, the young should ask me to pour into them more. There's all these different things that swirl around. And I'm not going to give you a diagnosis of what I think the right thing to do is. I'm just going to say that until the generations are one, it's proof that self is woven into our spirituality because we're self-conscious. We're not Christ-conscious because if we were Christ-conscious, we'd be radically in love with Jesus within one another. The two would become one. I actually think within the church, the generational barriers would start to dissipate because we'd be so radically in love with Jesus with one another. And you know, if you only value people that think like you and act like you, it's just a sign. It's a projection that there's self woven into your spirituality because somehow you're still just looking at you. Because if you look at Jesus, you can't just be in love with what's like you because Jesus is like you, but he's a whole lot not like you too. And we all are this unique depiction of Jesus. So I'm just going to say that's, that's a sign. That would be an in indicator you know, do you value people that think different than you, that perhaps 
are you know, just different than you in a lot of different ways, and are you in love with them? I'm speaking to the church right now. Another way that I see this division is even within the giftings themselves. We did this really beautiful exercise in the catechumenate last year. I taught on the fivefold in Ephesians 4, the five different leadership graces, the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelistic, the pastoral, the teaching. And I spread them. I had people self-identify what they most resonated with, got them across the room, and then I brought topics that I knew would create uh, conflict within the different paradigms. And it was beautiful. It was actually challenging. I kind of got triggered in one of them. Um, <laughs> and I, I've told people, I'm like, man, I learned so much in that. I was like, if there's one thing that I'd do different going back and walking through all the fiasco of COVID, I was like, we would create more spaces like that where the different God-given graces could all be in the same room and start to leaven one another because at least we'd all feel heard. <laughs> we still probably wouldn't know what to do, but uh, we, would, we would have at least felt heard. Uh, and, and the point that I'm making is this, is what happens typically within the church or within the larger churches is that we gravitate towards the people that think the same way as us and operate the same way as us, the same giftings as us. The prophetic is all in the prophetic and the teachers are all over here and the pastors are all over here. And there's like these camps that form because we only value what's like me. And that's just a sign of independence. It's a sign that we don't see ourselves as a part of the body, but we see ourselves as self-sufficient, me and Jesus. And that is so destructive to the life of the body. This is why Paul spends so much time extrapolating this metaphor that you can't say, I have no need of the eye, or I have nothing to offer to the body. Insecurity or pride is destructive. Arrogance or insecurity. It's the same, same side, two sides of the same coin. We have to fall in love with Jesus. And again, if we become Christ conscious, we will naturally, even subconsciously, start to gravitate towards people and places and things that are different than us because we recognize that he's bigger than me. I'm a part of something bigger than me. We start to get a revelation that I'm not God's only child. I'm part of a family. And, and what I think if you come to the dinner table and what you think's the only way, they're probably going to stop inviting you after a while. You're going to be like that crazy uncle that only shows up once every four Thanksgivings. And you're like, what's he going to say this time? Hey, we're part of a family. And then two, second mark of independent spirit in the life of the church is an unwillingness to give your heart to the church. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we could define treasure in a lot of ways. Jesus is defining it as money there, but you could define it as money, time, affection, love, loyalty, fidelity, all these things. And we're living in an age of a generational-wide trust, breakdown of all trust for all forms of authority. And we don't realize that the water that we're swimming in makes us deeply question anybody that's in leadership and any institution of leadership and anything that would be a formality or structure. And what we don't realize is that there's this spirit of the age, there's this worldly wisdom that actually is making us challenge the wisdom of Jesus. And this is the challenge point, is we start to think that we're justified, that because we're well aware of the church's flaws, that we don't have to fully submit and offer our heart to the church. And this is the truth. Jesus designed this. No pastor, nothing. It's just, it's right there. Like Jesus designed for us to come under the authority 
of imperfect human leadership in this beautiful thing that he calls the church that he says he shed his blood for. He never had an illusion that the church was perfect, and yet he still calls us to it. Don't forsake the public assembly of the believers. Don't, don't forsake the church. Give your heart to her. And if I were to just, you know, we can go into all the different expressions of that, but it's not about the, the external. It's about the internal. And this is the internal reality, is that most people in this nation, the church is a condiment that adds flavor to their life. It's not at the center. It's at the periphery. It's condiment. It's not the main thing. When what Jesus is wanting is a people that will give themselves to the church so that the church plays the center and that other things in life are the condiments. Other things fit into the main thing because the life of the church, right? What is the church? It's Jesus's God-given, it's the ordained creation of Jesus to be the, the focal point, the place where the kingdom of God disseminates into the world. So the reason Jesus would have us submit to an imperfect process, an imperfect human-led organization, though it's spirit-led, it's also, it's kind of like, is the, is the Bible inspired or is it human? That's another topic for another day. Is the church led by humans or is it led by God? Both. If you listen to a clarinet solo, was it the instrument or was it the, in the instrumentalist? It's both. We don't know how to do this, but we can't justify giving anything less than all of ourselves to Jesus's, the community he ordained. We can't say we follow Jesus, but have a, have a little kind of tap dance relationship with his bride. Sometimes we think we, Jesus loves it when we go to him and it'd be like someone coming to me and say, dude, I love you, Jordan, but like your wife's a little whack. I'd be like, you don't love me then because she's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and heart of my heart. She's my beloved. I would step in the front of that. You don't say it unto her. You say it unto me. She is the love of my heart. She is the passion. She is, my whole inner being is woven into her. How can you not love her if you say you love me? I have no agenda to control or coerce or manipulate some sort of artificial engagement into the life of this church or any other. I'm simply just saying there is a deeper shalom that's available. And what you offer unto the church of Jesus, you offer unto Jesus himself. And I don't think that the church is to dominate your entire life and to have unhealthy bound, no. But it's the question, is the church a condiment to the way that you're going to live your life and your time and your money and your resources and your talent? Or, or, or does it play a part of your heart? Is your treasure within the community of God? Because if we will treasure this community, this church that Jesus gave us, this imperfect in so many ways, but if we'll treasure her, we'll find ourselves coming into congruence, with, into congruence with the kingdom. Because Jesus birthed the church, not for the sake of the church, but for the sake of the kingdom.
Our fidelity to the church is actually at a more deep fundamental level. It's a fidelity to the kingdom of God. And living in an independent paradigm siphons the measure of what we will see come forth from our life. Because it is not my calling, my destiny, it's ours. And so independence will always just be in measure. And I just want to close like this. And this is again from such love. I talked about Jesus the prophet tonight. And I, I love Jesus the prophet. And I love the prophetic grace. And this is not everyone here or anyone listening, but this is some, is that I have found that this particular independence in relation to the church is most prevalent within the prophetic grace. And part of that's because the prophetic anointing has a very strong connection with God. There is an incredible amount of grace that's available just in independence. And there's also hurt. But I want to call prophets, if you're listening online, if you're in this room, I want to call you to God's order for your life, which is to come under authority of a local church, not to control you, but so that the full expression of your gift can be released, so that the biblical leadership of God can come under and that you can flourish. I, I, in some ways, I feel like some, I don't even know if you're here, if you're just listening, but it's like, I, I feel like I'm supposed to just call you home to the church and that you can give your heart to the church even if the church is imperfect. You can trust Jesus, that he knows what he's doing in the way that he's designed this whole thing to work. Deep breath. Lord, I thank you that your word is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And I pray, Father God, that your word has proceeded forth tonight. And that Holy Spirit, you have brought the truth. That you've taken the words of Jesus and you've made them known to us tonight on earth. I ask, Lord, that everything that is true and rooted in godliness will penetrate into the inner reaches of our hearts. Lord, anything that is Jordan or my opinion, you can let that fade away, but let your truth remain, God. And you tell us that if we continue in the truth, the truth will set us free. So we thank you, God, for your word, for your truth. We thank you for the vision of Jesus, the peacemaker. And I pray, God, I join with the cry of creation, the cry of the Spirit and the Son tonight. And I say, bring forth the sons and daughters of God in this house. Whoever's listening to this online, wherever we are in the world, God, bring forth sons and daughters that make peace and usher shalom back into your creation. We pray that in Jesus' name. You know, I, I just, I'm just going to invite you to, to sit with the Lord. We're not going to do ministry. I think the Holy Spirit's done ministry, uh, human ministry at least. But I, I just invite you that if you want to sit with the Lord and just kind of 
I feel the gravity of God here. And uh, let's just respect the space. So I just maybe ask that when you're ready to leave, just leave quietly and there's a really huge lobby over there that you can talk to people and stuff. But let's just, I think God's gravity is here. And so maybe just ask the Lord, do you want me to stay here or do you release me? And uh, once you just kind of feel that release, go and be blessed and go in the shalom of God. Bless you, church.